Welcome to Vet Voices, a podcast produced by Warner Enterprises, where average is for other people. Army, Marines, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, let your voice be heard on Warner's Veteran Podcast. Now buckle up and get ready for the host of Vet Voices, Greg, Johnny, and Adam. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Vet Voices, the Warner Enterprises podcast spotlighting the stories of veterans across our company and community. Today, we have a special guest with us, Todd Krause, one of our professional drivers and also a 22-year veteran of the U.S. Army. He's a finalist for the prestigious Kenworth Transition Trucking Driving for Excellence Award, and today we're going to get to know him a little bit more. Todd, let's let's start with your time in the Army. You want to give us the basics about when you entered, what what did you do, all that good stuff. Give us the the two-minute rundown of your Army service. Wow, two minutes for 22 years. That's that's pretty good. You I, can think, have, I think you I can, can manage it. You can have two and a half if you want. All right. <laughs> so um, in 1986, uh, I was already a year out of high school, didn't know exactly what I, what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I thought about uh, truck driving back then with a couple of buddies of mine. Um, thought about being a chiropractor. My next door neighbor uh, and I talked about being a chiropractor together. And I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I was delivering newspapers one day and, you know, and I had four jobs at a time. And I decided between jobs, I was eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and uh, the a commercial came on, be all that you can be. And uh, so I called in sick to my next job and uh, went straight to the recruiting office. It was about 4.30 and they were getting ready to close down for the day. I, I walked in there and talked to talked to Sergeant Sexton, I think was his name. And, uh, you know, I looked at the Coast Guard and the Navy. I really liked the boats and I didn't want to wear bell bottoms, uh, so I wasn't going to go in the Navy. <laughs> and and the Coast Guard had recently done some downsizing of different jobs and as you know delivering newspapers every day I saw that as a headline uh, that they had uh, downsized like 10,000 people for some reason and I didn't know the bigger picture that you know there's still over 100,000 jobs in the Coast Guard so but at the time I was like yeah I'm not not sure about that but I went into a supply field in the army and uh, ended up at Fort Campbell Kentucky and I, I did the air assault course there. They sent me to airborne school. I got deployed to Egypt after that. For, how, how tough of a class is air assault? Air assault, I think, was a tougher class than the actual airborne school. Um, there's all kinds of things you have to learn with the air assault class, you know, sling load operations, how to um, safely uh, sling load cargo and equipment, you know, putting those big trucks and things underneath the helicopters. It's all helicopter focused. It right? is. Yep. Okay. And, uh, you know, the static discharge, uh, you know, the air, the, the blades going through the air is creating a huge static, uh, field. So if you don't have somebody with a grounding rod in the ground and then discharge the static off of the, the hook underneath the helicopter, you can get blown like 40 feet off the top of the rig that you're on. Oh, wow. So you got to make sure that the timing is right for the two people up there. One person's going to discharge the static and the next person's going to put the hook on the bottom of the helicopter. Otherwise it could be a, a bad deal for you. I would imagine that's a pretty tough thing, tough thing for the normal run of the day average army soldier. I know that uh, we have Greg Cam on the podcast a lot, and he struggles with some of the simple tasks <laughs> quite often. 
I understand that. You know, the the more difficult ones, you know, you think about it a lot more, and then the uh, the simple things that you think is so easy, it's like, what the heck am I doing wrong? You know, if you're not trained and and don't have the gist of what you should be doing before, you know, it looks simple when these guys do it. You know, just go up and slap a hook on the bottom of the helicopter, but you know. You don't realize that they're the guy, other guy up there touching the bottom of the, the hook with a grounding rod that's in the ground, that's going to save your life. I love Todd's wholesome answer to the shade right. that Adam was trying to throw <laughs> at his fellow coworker. <laughs> nice job. All right. So air assault, airborne. I, I derailed the conversation there a little bit. I apologize. Oh, no problem. You know, that's what it's all about, kind of learning and getting to know each other, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Um, then I got stationed in Egypt and in Egypt, uh, you know, I learned to scuba dive. I, I actually got to float on the Dead Sea, uh, swim in the Mediterranean Sea and scuba dive in the Red Sea all in the, in the same, you know, deployment out there. So what, I was, what year, remind me, what year did you join and what year was this in Egypt? I went in the military in 89 and I, or excuse me, 86. And then I went to Egypt in 89 and 90. So I did 18 months in Egypt. 86 was a good year. Also was the year that I was born. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that. You're you're welcome. (laughs) That's all right. Yeah. Um, So while I was there, you know, I learned to scuba dive. So I'm air air assault, airborne scuba. You know, the the scuba wasn't a military operation, but it was uh, recreational. Um, I did 18 months over there in the supply field. And when I was getting ready to re-enlist, you know, that was the end of my four years. And uh, a buddy of mine, um, that was happened to be over there. He enlisted for a re-enlisted for the army's watercraft field. I'm like, are you kidding me? The oh, army wow. has boats. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> and so, uh, I ended up re-enlisting for the boat field. I ended up at Fort Eustis, Virginia, and I was a, uh, sergeant, a coxswain of a, a LCM eight, which is the Mike boat. That's the, the boat you see coming into the beaches on saving private Ryan. Um, that's where I started. And I, it has, a, it, has it changed at all since we used it in World War II or is it the same? It's, it's the same principle. The same principle. They've, they've, uh, upgraded the engines. It's no longer four, six cylinder engines. It's two 12 cylinder engines. I think the guy that made that originally for World War II was a Nebraska native. I think that whole idea originated out of the great state of Nebraska. I'll have to fact check that. Is that why it's Omaha stuff. beach? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. They had plenty of places in, here in Nebraska to uh, to test drive those vessels, correct? <laughs> it's so much water here. <laughs> right. Land of 10,000 lakes, they call us. Yeah. <laughs> give us give us the problem. We'll solve it. <laughs> That's right. You know, we, I guess they could do the dry run here, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you were a coxswain on these landing craft. Right. You originally enlisted in the Army. Correct. Were you, and I... Due to our conversation yesterday, I know you became a warrant. When did the warrant happen? Um, a cu- couple of years after being in the boat field, um, okay. and you know, I I actually have a, a really good knack for operating the the vessels. Um, I just decided that uh, it was time to step up and go to the larger ships. Um, we got the. 128-foot tugboat uh, that was designed to be a 151 feet, but uh, they wanted to save some money, so they chopped, chopped off 28 or 31 feet of it, I guess, and, and added another deck higher. But because of the draft restrictions of where we were docking in uh, Fort Eustis, Virginia, up the James River, they couldn't add any draft. 
So, you know, that makes a whole lot of sense. You've, you've completely changed a tugboat to where it's got a higher center of gravity, but not putting it deeper in the water. So when a Zodiac went by you, when you tied to the pier, you could still feel it uh, rock you pretty good on the bridge of the ship or tug. That's crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we took that out around Cape Hatteras and uh, down to Venezuela towing a, a barge that had a mic boat on it. And we were giving the mic boat to Venezuela at the time. How long does uh, that trip take? I, I can't that imagine. Was, that was a, a, a couple mover. weeks, right? No, it's it's not really a fast mover. Um, and depending on the seas and conditions, it can slow you down. If you've got uh, a lot of swell, you've got to adjust the uh, distance between your your barge and the and the vessel so that you don't uh, get kind of the spring action back and forth. You you want it to fall down the wave at the same time that you're going down a wave, you know, further ahead of it. Um, so you're not kind of snapping back and forth, and it'll ruin the lines and and cause all kinds of damage. So, just for the record, I am going to refuse to call it a barge, a vessel, or a ship, uh, just to make my granddad roll over in his grave. I will be calling it a boat, <laughs> a boat. throughout the rest of the po- the podcast uh, because he was a Navy man through and through, and I was corrected for thirty years of my life about calling it a boat. It had to be a ship. A boat drags its belly on the bottom. A submarine in the Navy is a boat. I, I don't know. Oh, there no. you go. I, sounds like what you have is a boat too. Yes. Um, we, we called it, you know, that was a tugboat. It was a 128-foot tugboat. Uh, we also took a barge, um, a water purification barge to the Virgin Islands um, down in the Caribbean. You know, it's a rough job that we had in the, in the boat field. Sounds like a great place to continue scuba diving. It was. We did. I did scuba diving all over the world. You know, being in the boat field and uh, access to oceans wherever you go. Man, oh, oh. T- the Navy really missed out on you. How, how does that? <laughs> how does that reconcile? Well, I tell people I was in the Army's Navy. <laughs> I was stationed at an Air Force Base in Hawaii, uh, Hickam Air Force Base. Um, we hauled the Marines back and forth from the Big Island to Oahu. You know, they they couldn't do any of their excavation training and their big gun training on Oahu. It's a little bit too populated for that. So they did all that training on the Big Island. Um, and at our school in Virginia, we actually taught celestial navigation courses to the Coast Guard. So I had my, you know, our, our little piece of the pie had the hand in everything except for the Space Force. Um, and that happened after I retired. So they may be doing something with Space Force, you know, collecting something that falls off things you know, out in the ocean when they launch from Canaveral or whatever. You know, I, I like my feet firmly planted on the ground um, or on the deck of a ship, you know, underway. Boat. You know, okay, ship, boat. <laughs> you, can put a, you can put a boat on a ship, but you can't put a ship on a boat. That makes sense. There you go. Unpack that one, Adam. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I've got pictures of uh, all of the boats in the Army, a lot of them on the deck of the, the Cormorant, which was a ship that would sink down into the water, and you float your boat onto their deck, and secure, they'd secure it as the, the ship came up out of the water, and they transport them to different places, like uh, when they took uh, stuff to the Middle East. They're a lot faster than us. The, our, our vessels were moving, a, you know, 10 knots was a good high average for us, which is great for fishing. And um, we've caught marlin all over the world. Uh, you know, uh, caught uh, 53 tuna in 17 hours in the Persian Gulf. You, you were showing me some of those pictures earlier today. It's just uh, talk about a morale boost of running a fishing line off the back of a boat. 
and getting to catch something that big. And then I would imagine in short order, it ends up on some type of barbecue grill on the boat. Yes, right. because it wasn't, uh, you know, FDA approved and all that. Uh, we couldn't uh, have our cooks do it in the galley. So we either did sashimi, um, eating it raw, um, or on the grill on the back deck where we grilled our own or grilled for the whole crew. Um, depending on which vessel I was on and who was interested, we had fish constantly. Solid. I had I had run out of recipes, and I asked my older brother, I said, you know, you do a lot of fishing. What do you use for a recipe? He says, you're going to think I'm crazy, but get peanut butter. Okay. Yep, you're crazy. And, yeah. and mix it with soy sauce so oh. it's really smooth and creamy. Okay. And then you spread it over the fish, and you grill it that way. It's really a good fish. Is there much peanut flavor left there, over? There is. There's, okay. a, there's enough. Um, but... He didn't let me know that beware, um, peanut butter is highly flammable. <laughs> so peanut butter is in the actual like edible food. Is yes, flammable. it's very flammable. Um, I, I no when idea. I when I had that on my tuna steaks, um, I had about six um, inch and a half thick tuna steaks on the grill, covered with this peanut butter and soy sauce mix. Um, I had the grill lit, I put the lid down and all of a sudden the flames are coming out the side and it's just roaring. And I, mean, I lifted the lid and I'm glad that I didn't have to pay for those steaks. <laughs> Tune is done. Yeah. yeah. They, they were well charred. So yeah. if you decide to do this, if you're out there listening, make sure you put foil down under the steaks <laughs> because as soon as that, uh, sauce starts dripping off of the tuna, it will ignite. Wow. Interesting. Some people pay extra for that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it would have probably been about $300 worth of tuna steaks that wow. I just went up in flames. You know, they were they were quite large. Yes, we've got to go fishing some more. Yeah. So, so by this point in time, bigger boat and your warrant. Yes. What, what was the process to transition from enlisted army to warrant? Army. What's that like? Is there a, a class? It's a warrant officer basic course. Wobec. Uh, um, you go down. It's. I think it's harder than basic training. Okay. Um, you have a bunch of uh, people that are the black hat instructors that do their best to break people. I had um, actually had a sergeant major in my class that was trying to transition over warrant officer school. And when you, At you that have point in your career, yeah, why would you? Exactly. And and he's sitting there with these, you know, younger, much younger warrant officers standing there screaming at him in his face and and belittling him and degrading him and trying to break him. He's like, screw you. I'm done. Yep. <laughs> and so, yep. you know, those those have been in their career for or in the military for quite a while were some of the earliest that fell out. I actually had one guy um, that was in my Wobat course that he was in the high school to fly school program. So his flight aptitude scores were high enough that he went from, you know, entering the military, basic training, didn't go to an AIT. He went straight to a warrant officer basic course to be a pilot. His senior drill sergeant from basic training was in the same program. So he's like, you know, it took a while for him to shake off that. Yes, senior drill sergeant. <laughs> he was really nervous around this guy. Is that... The, the normal path is enlist first and then become a warrant? Yes. Most of them, most 
individuals don't come off the street and go directly to warrant, correct? Right. Um, if you have flight aptitudes, you can do that from a, the high school to flight school program. Right. But that's that's pretty rare, I would right. imagine. Right. Okay. And then the boat field, you had to have, you know, five years of uh, um, watercraft uh, knowledge. Um, you had to have a senior warrant officer, a couple of senior warrant officer letters of endorsement to recommend you for the school before you could even get in. Five Five grades? Right, for the ranking system? Is it yes. one through five? Five yeah. being the top? Yeah, W-O-1 uh, okay. for your for your initial, your warrant officer. And then after you get two, it's CW, two, chief warrant officer, two, three, four, and then five. And mm-hmm. five started toward the end of my career. They didn't even have a five um, until, gosh, I don't know what year it was, but two or three years before I retired is when they had the CW5 rank come out. And fives are pretty rare. Yes, they are. Okay. Okay. Air Force vet, right? 18 years in the Air Force, just shy 18 years in the Air Force. We don't do warrants anymore, so I'm always just fascinated to talk. The The one experience I've personally had was Iraq uh, deployment with a warrant. We were working for the Army as an Air Force contingent, and the chief warrant, he was a three or a four, I think, at that point in time. I was very young in my career, um, and I – Everybody just, he walked in the room and it was instant respect, period, um, from everybody in the Army. And it, it was just interesting to watch from the air side. The warrant officers are the technical experts for the military. So, you know, while the, the desk officer, the captain, the major uh, might be a transportation officer where he's in charge of truck units or boat units or train units or plane units or whatever, you know, it's a transportation officer position. The the boots on the ground, the vessel master, the chief engineer, the ones who have got the technical ability to um, operate the machinery or to to work the, the process, that's the job of the warrant officer. So I think that the respect is definitely tied to that. I think there's another component of it. Every time I ever wanted to find a drink, an alcoholic beverage, in a place I was not allowed to have one, I just had to find my nearest warrant. Um, and somehow they always, always had a footlocker full of it, had a locker full of it, or whatever the story is, right? So I think that plays into the respect piece a little bit. Is that ring true in your neck of the woods as well, or is that just an uneducated Air Force veteran Speaking out of turn. Well, I was never stationed in any place that uh, they didn't have any uh, liquor bans or anything. You were a chief warrant officer, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, you know, when we did our trips to say Puerto Rico, you know the the rum down there was extremely cheap. The liquor, you know, so all my guys would go out there and and load up as much of this uh, cheap, well, inexpensive liquor and stuff. I, I went more toward the uh, you know they had the. The tenderloins at the Costco down there was $17 versus $60 for the same tenderloin at a Costco in the United States. It's crazy. So, you know, I, I loaded my cooler with with tenderloins and everybody else was loading the uh, yeah. their, their foot lockers with the liquor. So they'd, <laughs> they spent $500 on liquor that would have been, you know, a couple thousand dollars worth of liquor on, on, on U.S. soil. So he's not denying my perception. I just want that noted. There you go. Yep. The warrant officers are, like I said, the technical experts. So if if there's if there's a something you need, you know, see a, see a warrant officer. Amen. Okay, we've talked. I, I feel like we're are we halfway through your career yet? Where 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 are you at? We've talked about Egypt. We've talked about 
um, Puerto Rico. We've talked about Venezuela. Uh, wh- where are we at in timeline? How many years do you have in by this point? Um, that's about the halfway point. I, I went as a warrant, went into warrant officer about my eight to nine year period in the in the military. Um, then I deployed to you know Hawaii. After that, uh, you know, I, I first went warrant. I decided, you know, let me try and get this Hawaii assignment. And they're like, yeah, good luck. You know, there's a whole lot of people ahead of you. Well, most of the people in the Army's watercraft field wanted to homestead in Virginia, and so I went from bottom of the list to top of the list and and into Hawaii within just a couple of years of making warrant. So I, I've been a, a, a third mate on a on an army ship. Third mate was the um, basically the supply officer on the ship. We you know substance we did um, all, got all the food and any of the supplies that the ship needed. And then a second mate was the uh, quartermaster of the ship. Yeah, you know, the the well not the quartermaster the the navigation officer in charge of the quartermaster of the ship. The quartermaster did the the, the charts and the and all the uh, the navigation. The quartermaster. I thought the quartermaster was all supply. So in the quartermaster corps, um, that's a supply field. Okay. The quartermaster on a ship or a boat, a vessel, is the navigation, the enlisted navigation soldier on the ship. Okay. Um, the navigation officer is the second mate position. Okay. Uh, so in charge of uh, uh, getting us from point A to point B and figuring all the points in between uh, that it takes to get there, that's the, the navigation officer's job, making sure everything's plotted and, and gets ready to, to get you to, to the finish point. These bigger boats that you were on, you were a warrant at the time. How many warrants were on versus what's what's the crew makeup look like? How many, how many enlisted? How many warrants? What's that look like? So we'd have 30 to 31 people on board the vessel, including, you know, if we had our, our medic, our three cooks, um, we had eight warrant officers, the chief engineer, um, the senior enlist or senior engineer on the engine side, um, usually a W3 or W4. And then uh, the first, second, and third assistant on the engineer side. The deck officers um, would have the, the skipper of the vessel, the first, second, and third mate. So eight total warrant officers. Okay. The first mate position is the, the cargo officer. You, we handle any of the cargo operations. You're in charge of making sure we've got the enough deck space. We've got enough dunnage. We've got enough uh, equipment to tie down the, you know, the water purification barge or the the mic boat or the the you know the the whole deck of the ship is strapped down with bombs or going to the middle east. Tuna, right? Yeah, uh, there whatever, you go. Whatever you're carrying. Fifty-three that day. tuna. There you go. Yep. So, you know, that's that's the first mate's job. And then the skipper is in charge of the whole ship. And the skipper is a warrant, correct? It is, yes. Okay, so no commissioned O's no. on the boat. No, they're, they're passengers. Okay, all right. We've had several of them on board that uh, want to be a, a passenger. and uh, I, yeah. I would prefer to be a passenger in my experience. Yeah, and you can sit back and watch the fishing lines. And so one of them gets tied or the, the rubber band breaks to let you know you got to fish on. You know, you just hit the, the button on the on the walkie-talkie, let the bridge know, fish on. And so we're, you know, all back or all, like all stop. <laughs> seems like an important job. It is a greatly important job. Okay, so halfway through your career, how'd you finish out? What, what did the back half of your career look like? Well, a lot of that t- took me, you know, th- from the mid to the the back end of that. I retired out of Hawaii as a, a CW three. I actually did operations officer out of Hawaii when I was finally 
winding down. I did a, a shoulder surgery, so I wasn't on board the vessel anymore. So I took the operations job to to uh, you know start scheduling and planning all the the missions, and retired as a chief warrant officer three in Hawaii. What's rank progression look like for warrants? What is there's never any timeline from one rank to another that's reliable across everybody, but how do you go from one to two to three to four to five? What's that process look like? Well, it's basically, uh, you know, the, the one to two is pretty much an automatic thing after okay. two years. Um, at two to three, you know, you're, you're boarded like an enlisted soldier going to okay. different boards. It's almost a given to, to three, but if you're passed over the first time, uh, you've only got one more time to make it. So if they've got um, 100% CW3s in your field and you're up for promotion and there's no slots for you, the first time you pray that somebody retires before you're coming up for your second sh- shot right. the next year. If there's no slots available for you, you don't have a chance. You're, you're done. How many, you might not know, and it probably is dated information, how many warrants are there? So your field, right? How many? How many are you competing against for rank in in the boat service? I really couldn't even venture a guess. I know okay. we had um, a couple of the the large ocean tugs. We had uh, thirty four um, LCUs. Um, we had a bunch of the small tugs, uh, the the harbor tugs, um, seven LSVs, or I guess six active duty LSVs. When I was in, I know the reserves had one. I think they've uh, probably done a few more since then. We actually had a high-speed vessel, a HSV. Um, we actually, when we got that out of Tasmania, <laughs> um, it was a, a fast ferry, and the Army used that. Uh, I guess they did a, a trip. The, the maiden voyage from Tasmania to Virginia was a 17-day trip, and that thing just would really cruise. And we, we shared that as a joint venture with the Navy for the first year or two. And then we got a couple more. And so that's one of those um, operational platforms for the, the command uh, out in the Middle East. They, they ran that for a while. I, I don't know. I, I didn't actually get to be on board, board that vessel. Um, I got to tour it and... Tasmania wish. is <laughs> Australia, right, right near Australia, correct? Right? Yes. And they've got the entire island. Is Tasmania off of Aust- one of the islands off of Australia? Is I, Tasmania? I, yes, I believe so. I, I didn't okay. get to go down there either. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, that would have been an awesome trip. Right. It's just not a country, or a, I guess it's a state of Australia. It's not. You you never hear right. much it's, talked about it. it I mean, yeah, basically, it's you know they they say we got this this vessel from Australia, but it yeah. actually came from Tasmania. So okay. maybe that is their a state you, of Australia. Yeah. Unless you watch Looney Tunes, because right. the Tasmanian <laughs> devil a is of, a lot of discussion. He it, yep. spins around and right smashes everything up. Okay, um, you mentioned shoulder surgery, retirement, mo- uh, moved into ops position, and then retirement. Uh, what did you do after you got out? I was going to be a police officer. I, I planned on it. I was I had everything submitted to the uh, uh, King County Sheriff's Department in Washington because that's kind of your foot in the door in Washington to go through there. And it was all set and ready to go. And my wife said, you know, you've done four tours to the desert. You've come home with no holes in you. Um, you stop, haven't been blown up. Stop tempting fate, please. Yes, please don't go, you know, piss off some crackhead that uh, stabs you or shoots you or something. And I'm like, 
okay, now what am I going to do? And so, you know, my wife, she said, please do something else. And uh, I was already on my terminal leave. I had my own home repair business in Hawaii doing quite well. Um, but my wife and kids wanted snow. So we moved Wait, to- Wait, what? <laughs> yes, they, they didn't want to stay in Hawaii. My <laughs> wife is from Hawaii. My kids were born in Virginia. And they wanted snow. So we moved to Spokane, Washington. Wow. And uh, we got plenty of snow. The first year, we actually landed June 10th of 2008. And there was four inches of snow when we landed in Spokane. And at any point, did your wife admit that maybe it was a mistake? Not a chance. She still loves it. Oh, my God. I can't just imagine that conversation like, hey, honey, I'm kind of sick of Hawaii. I would really like... (laughs) Hon- Snow. Honestly, honestly, though, I I think I side with your wife. There I might be I, something there. I think I want some colder temp. She wanted four seasons, not just oh, snow. She wanted four seasons. There you go. Yep. And my four seasons are scuba season, fishing season, surfing season, <laughs> beach season. <laughs> and unfortunately, I was outruled. It was three to one. So we, you know, happy wife, happy life. Yeah. We, we moved to Spokane, Washington. Absolutely. That winter, so we had the the first five years we were there, we had the the five uh, winter records set for the first five years. The latest winter, June 10th, snow. And then the coldest winter, the deepest snow on record. Um, we actually, you know, I talked about when I was a little kid in Rexburg, Idaho, we were sledding off the top of grandma and grandpa's house because the snow had drifted so much, it buried the house. You're You're still married to the same woman? I am. 30, 30 she's years a, or something like almost that. 30 right. years yeah she's a wow. saint wow <laughs> that's impressive sounds like you might be a saint too <laughs> yeah <laughs> breaking records no matter what right. is uh, pretty amazing well so that that winter we actually my kids were like yeah you didn't sled off the house that winter we were sledding off of our house in Spokane <laughs> Washington <laughs> it was insane so you know deepest wettest coldest and uh, <laughs> latest winters on record for the first five years we were there it's crazy so we can fast forward a little bit to my uh, yeah decision to go into trucking. Yeah, let's real quick. Let's cover your fairly large stint at the postal service because yeah, got talked out of being a cop wisely, uh, and then there's still a pretty significant gap between 08, 09 time frame and when you came to Warner. What what did you do in between? I got hired on at the post office. My okay. my brother-in-law said, hey, I've got a guy that works for me that the post office is always calling, trying to get him to come back to work. And so I got a hold of this guy and says, well, who's calling you? And he gave me the name of the, the postmaster that was calling, trying to get him to come back to work. I called her um, and I could never get through because she was always busy. So I drove to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho and met with her at her office as she was getting ready to leave. And... She says, I am absolutely excited that you're wanting to come to work for the post office. This is my last day at this office. I start tomorrow in Spokane, Washington at the North Point office. Um, Could you be there at three o'clock in the morning? I'm like, sure, Sure. absolutely. At the time, I was living at my brother's house out in Elk. Uh, My family was still in Hawaii because we wanted to wait till the end of the school year before we brought them down. So they made you move into the snow by yourself? (laughs) Yes, I moved moved January of 2008. Um, when, so when there was five inches of snow at my house in Spokane, there was five feet at my brother's house in Elk. And so, you know, a half hour drive turns into an hour drive with all the extra snow. Five feet's a lot. 
It is. Um, I didn't. I didn't know he had fencing around his property. He had these five foot high cattle panel fences to keep his goats, and I didn't see fences. It was buried. It's wild. Where yeah. are the goats in that situation? They, he had a, 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 a pen, a barn, and pen that they, buried. Yes, yeah, you buried. had to you had to go across the drifts and down into the and uh, into the pen. It was it was quite interesting. But so I, I made it into the post office. I started there. I was I was a casual clerk at the post office. So work in the desk. Uh, yeah. No, I was actually um, sorting parcels and sorting you know the trays of mail would I would sort them off of the cart that came from the plant. And when you say uh, casual, does that get to mean you wear a t-shirt and shorts to work? Yes, or? absolutely. Okay. Um, I was not. I was not a face of anybody. Um, okay. So I you know I didn't have to see customers. God, I was is, this o, the scenes. is this at O three hundred too? Yes. Okay. So yeah, there's nobody there to even yeah. see what you're you're being your PJs. So the the clerks, um, there was you know full time regular clerks yeah. that actually had pension and, and vacation time earning. A casual doesn't earn anything other than their paycheck. Gotcha. All right. So that it is a scheduling thing. My my wife is a nurse practitioner at the hospital, and she's considered casual status because she only gets the paycheck, zero benefits. It's just the the paycheck. Right. Um, and they call her a casual non-career. Okay, got it. Okay, and then I went from there. I, I was uh, offered a career position as a uh, mail handler at the plant. So once again, I was, you know, going in in the, at eight, eight or nine o'clock at night and staying till four in the morning. Um, and then come the holiday time, you're in there two hours early. You stay two hours late, so you're doing twelve-hour days, you know, every day. Todd, I'm interested too. I mean, the U.S. Postal Service is obviously another government agency. I mean, did they look at your gov- time in in enlisted? Was that like a what was that like? Did they did they bring that up? Was that a pro? Was that a con? What it, was, what? it could have been a pro if I would have brought my paperwork with me. Um, you, you have your 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 uh, your wife still had it in Hawaii. Yes, it was still in Hawaii. <laughs> uh, but I scored I scored well enough on my test that uh, I still was at the top of the. Right. You know, you get five extra points for being a veteran, uh, another five extra points for being a disabled vet. So it would have given me 10 more points on my hiring to put me above my peers. But I, I scored well enough on my exams or my tests for the post office. They give you tests, like how many stamps you can lick? <laughs> no, you know, there's all kinds of tests to, you know, to show that you're able to sort mail. Okay. Um, to be able to figure out what street it's going to be on, you know, what, what route it's going to be on, what zip code. Street. Gotcha. Right. Uh, so there's, I imagine like uh, like American Gladiators. Like, <laughs> is it in back? Is that's really what's going on right. in back there? There's somebody with a foam dart that's like so, blasting you as you're trying to put stuff in, in Todd, boxes. Todd just did. We have the United Way going on right now. Yeah. Um. So Todd just battled a whole bunch of aliens in a virtual reality game, and he would probably crush American <laughs> Gladiator. He, you know, I think he set a record on the score for this yeah. shooting alien game. So. And for the record, I've never never had a virtual reality headset on my head. I've never done it. I've seen people crack TVs on commercials also, on TV, but I've never done record, it. I have it on video. <laughs> I think the more I learn about Todd, the more I feel like secretly he's in SEAL Team 6, and this whole thing has been a cover. Like, oh, yeah, I just deliver things. Like the tug, he gets out on like a submersible and darts out into Tasmania and like takes out a bunch of terrorists and then zips back. Oh. Maybe a long time ago, but now I look more like a SEAL than the SEAL team. <laughs> <laughs> Walrus. I like Todd. It's good times. Okay. So at some point in time, you went from casual status at the post office to full-time GS scale well, employee? or uh, Yes, I went to a mail handler at the plant. 
And then I was offered a, a full-time position as a mail handler. At the same time, I was offered a full-time position as a carrier. We actually, you know, did everything that came through the plant. I uh, ended up being a forklift operator, a tug operator. The tugs uh, towed, uh, um, looks like the roll tainers that the Dollar General account has, but it's a, a GPC or an OTR, hmm. uh, over-the-road containers that we, we hold them. It goes in the back of uh, trailers. Yes, right? it goes back into the back of the 53-foot trailers and loaded and taken across uh, the state to different uh, different actual mail units at the stations from the from the distribution centers. And then I ended up being uh, a carrier and carried mail for a, a few years. And then um, I was asked to go into management and I figured, well, it's a good time to, to do that. Uh, get me off the street. And, you know, I, as much as I like the snow, I don't want to go wading through it to deliver mail all the, every day. How was, how was carrying mail? How was that having a route? Uh, getting to know houses, all that stuff. I I enjoyed it. I delivered mail to, you know, as a carrier to most every station in the Spokane district. Part of me thinks that I would really enjoy just the being a mail carrier. It's a lot like it's a lot like being a truck driver. You know, the solitude of you're doing it. To, you know, you're in charge of what you have to deliver. Well, it almost feels like you got to be a cop after all. Like that's your beat, you know. <laughs> right. Like your beat cop. Yeah. Like you run your route and you get to know all the people on the on the yeah. route. Um, yeah. You could you could see where the trouble spots were. I mean, I I did call in a couple places that you could see that they were stripping cars in the back, and so I I, I called in. I've got a lot of friends or police officers, so I called and said, hey, you know, there's a spot here that uh, has got some cars that are being stripped down, and I've, this is a third one I've seen this week. I don't think that they're doing it because they're trying to rebuild a car. Postman, detective. Well, with some Seal of Team the, Six, with some of the news coming out of Oregon and Washington these days, I don't think you did good enough. I, I really think that you could have really nipped this in the bud. A oh yeah, bit better. So, got into management. How many years did you have with the post office? Um, just at, right at sixteen years. Okay. And then, what was your transition from that to ultimately landing at Warner? Well, while I was uh, my, right before my final eight months at uh, um, as a as a supervisor and postmaster in the post office. I, I did a stint on Whidbey Island over Christmas 2021, 16 weeks of uh, being a postmaster over there. Um, we had 10 routes, uh, four full-time regular employees as carriers. Um, we had carriers from all over the states. You know, We had a guy from New York. Um, I think he came in the furthest to volunteer to help out because there just weren't enough people to deliver the mail there. Um, living on an island, and it's an expensive island, so the people who lived on the island weren't uh, interested in delivering mail. And so we had people from all over. I mean, I was volunteered to be the postmaster from Spokane to go over there. We had higher-level people just to deliver packages. We had mechanics and, and custodians delivering packages. It doesn't count as volunteering if they told you to do it. Right. Well, I, I did volunteer. Okay. Is that voluntold? <laughs> yeah, voluntold versus that, that, volunteer. That, that, that's military voluntold. Right? There you but, go. But I did volunteer to go and help out and try and uh, you know just help help the uh, help the organization out a little bit. And so I did uh, my 16 weeks over there, and uh, during that time, I realized that I just don't get paid enough for what I do. And I decided, you know, I talked about going into trucking in the in my early high school days, and now might be a great time to do it. So I. Um, went to the 
truck driving school, Sage Truck Driving School out of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and decided, you know, I'm going to get my CDL while I was uh, still working at the post office and was able to get that on some off time. And while I was at a Sage, uh, they had several different posters around the office. And, uh, you know, I, I started applying. I applied at close to 50 truck driving places. And I got responses from around 40 of them, uh, good responses. Hey, we'd love to have you. Or, you know, you have to have a year of uh, practice and uh, uh, behind the wheel before we hire you. You have to have at least a year, some of them two years. But so I had 40 offers. And so I started asking the uh, director of the school there, what would you suggest? She goes, well, with your military background and looking at what you've done and how well you're doing, there's a couple of them that are really good to the military and Werner Enterprises. It was top of her list. And so I started looking at it and, you know, the posters on the wall there, the big um, freedom trucks that they were showing in the pictures. I said, that's what I want. I want to drive one of those freedom trucks. And she says, well, you know, if you want to talk to somebody, here's a recruiter's number for Werner. I talked to them and I, I got an offer right away from a Werner recruiter who says, you know, you're kind of the, the, he says, you're a unicorn. You know, you don't have any accidents. You don't have any uh, tickets. You know, you're. Live in Washington State. Yeah, live in Washington. Right. So all, all across the board, I was, I was checking the boxes for him. And so I was like, heck yeah, I'll go to Werner. And you're in a freedom truck today, correct? I am. Um, I guess uh, the way they saw how how much I cared for my truck, I you know the pride in my ride. I was always cleaning it and and taking pictures and posting it online uh, with the the Werner and you know just always enjoy having a clean truck. And so I, I that might have been part of it. I am driving the Operation Freedom Red. Remember everyone deployed truck. Um, keeping it shined up as good as I can when I'm not uh, traveling through Montana ice and snowstorms. <laughs> <laughs> so, Todd, for those people that don't know what the Operation Freedom trucks are, could you quick just kind of describe what what they what Werner's Operation Freedom trucks are, and then kind of what they mean to you? Like, what was when you saw it? You said that's what I want to be a part of. What, what is it that you saw? Well, it's an ambassadorship tool for the for Werner. You know, showing that we have pride and actually support the military. You know, we, they have all different kinds of, you know, they remember everyone deployed. Um, they have firefighter trucks. They have um, uh, autism trucks, uh, breast cancer awareness trucks. But they they actually get behind an organization and um, support them. And, and so that's kind of an, the ambassador truck or the, the freedom truck shows that Werner supports the military. Werner wants to employ military as they're transitioning from the military into the trucking industry. And so, you know, that that's a, a real eye opener that, hey, you know, this is, you know, if they're going to, if they're going to wrap the truck and you know, spend all that money to wrap a truck for, for to show their support, you know, that they're going to back their military personnel and really support you when you come to work for Werner. So eight, 18% of our current fleet is... Eighteen percent of our current fleet are military veterans, so it the the value proposition is definitely there, right? Veterans show up on time, veterans get the mission, they get it knocked out, and most of the time, we do it really well. Twenty four percent, twenty three percent ish um, of our million miler fleet of our active million miler fleet, those that have driven with us for one million or more 
safe, accident-free miles are military veterans. And I think that really speaks to what veterans bring to the table. And that also speaks to the one, supporting our military is the right thing to do, period. Two, we're seeing the results on the back end that it's a safer driver. It's a driver that shows up on time. It's a driver that takes pride in his ride, right? Keeps it clean, uh, all that stuff, which is the image that we want to portray as well. I agree. I mean, just the the pride aspect of, you know, the people who were in the military that had to have their their dress uniforms exactly right before, you know, going through your inspections. And, you know, you had to have that image that you showed to the public when you were out there. You know, I, I see the the truck convoys that go through the, the gas stations and, uh, you know, the, the truck stops. And I've actually talked to a lot of them that are, their profession is truck driving for the military and, and have talked to them about what's, what's your thought when you get out of the military, you know, this is a great career. I'm, I'm doing really well. And Werner Enterprises is a great company to work for. So, you know, keep us in mind if you're getting out and decide that you want a, a job as a truck driver, you're, you know, you're doing it right now. Um, and there's a track to get past the CDL aspect. You don't have to go to school if you're already doing it as a professional driver for the military. So, you know, being able to talk to them and, and see how professional they look out there and enjoying what they're doing there, you know, it's a natural progression and transition into the, into the trucking industry. So those, those veterans that are in that space now, those active duty service members, any advice that you would pass on to what you've learned in your last time with us? Uh, what advice would you have for the next generation that's coming after you? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, advice, just really transition into what you love doing. I mean, if you're loving it in the military, um, I, I absolutely love it. You're your you're own boss when you're out here on the road. You don't have to worry about the the 75 employees that work for you that don't want to come to work because they have eight hours of sick leave on the books. You know, you, you did your time in the military and now being out on the road as a professional, there's so many different kinds of jobs within even Werner where you can have home daily routes, home weekly routes, uh, home every few weeks. My first job with Werner, I had 18 days on the road and five days at home. What's, um, what's your current day to day? What do you do today? What's your normal schedule look like? Well, I'm a, I, I just bid onto a, a Costco account out of Tumwater, Washington. So I've only got a week of driving. You know, full one full active week with them. It's from a busy week from Tumwater, Washington to Belgrade, Montana, back to Tumwater, and then to Missoula, Montana, and to Belgrade, Montana again. Then back down, uh, took a load to Spokane and back, and went to Eugene, Oregon and back. Uh, all my first week. So, okay. wow. Um, when you when I go through Spokane, it's just happens to be that's where I'm I'm living. Uh, it's time for my ten hour break. By the time I get there, I get to take a ten hour break. Then after my trip back from Belgrade, I, I made it to Spokane again for my thirty four hour reset. So I get to see my wife as much or more than I did when I was in the post office because I you know was on all kinds of details that kept me out of the office. So so. Todd, you've recently been nominated for this award. Talk to us about this award that you've been nominated and a finalist for. Tell us about that process. Tell us about what that award is. Tell us about what it means to you. 
It's absolutely means the world. I've I've never really been nominated for anything in my life. Never won anything. You know, my my beautiful wife and children are are the biggest reward I've ever had in my life. Other than a couple wrestling tournaments in high school, that I was able to win. You know, that ninety eight pounder in high school. But uh, I I got a phone call from one of the. Uh, senior people here at Werner Enterprises and he says, Hey, so what are you doing different? What, how, how is this going for you? I'm like, I, you know, I'm just doing my job. What do you mean different? And he says, well, you know, this, this award, I'm like, what award? Well, you've been nominated. Well, what is it? <laughs> so, he, <laughs> so he explains that it's a transition trucking award and he says, you didn't even know what it was. I'll say, well, you know, I had never heard of it. You know, I kind of keep my head down and do my job. And yep. so he told me about this award and, you know, I had a, a two or three week long grin on my face where I was like, holy cow, you know, somebody's noticing that I'm doing my job and enjoying it and, and uh, being a part of this company. And so, you know, being nominated was absolutely mind blowing. What is it? What is the Transitioning and Trucking Award? Is your understanding? Transition Trucking Award is basically taking care of military members who are transitioning from military active duty into a civilian career. It doesn't actually have to be active duty. We've got Eric that is deployed now. He's a reservist who's a military member who's driving uh, for Werner, but and, you know he's just deployed for a year-long deployment to the Middle East. So you can be reservist, uh, active duty, a guardsman, um, transitioning into a civilian career. So you know, that's where the transition trucking comes from. Um, transitioning in, for me, you know, I did the postal service first, but, uh, you know, I still had that desire to do something different. So, the you know, Werner actually has paid me. Um, they paid my truck driving school back. Um, they actually gave me my my GI Bill. They, you know, I was in a... Uh, apprenticeship program. Apprenticeship program through Werner, where I got my GI Bill money paid back to me in a monthly installment. Um, so the way that Werner has taken care of me transitioning into trucking, it is so smooth and just a flawless entry into this into this field of trucking. You know, this career is you know people can go out and get jobs. You can go out and get a job doing anything. There's you know, thousands of jobs available open all over the United States, but f to find a career that will be able to continue to support me and my family at the level that I was, you know, expecting to, it is just a fluid transition right into this. Wow. So this, this award is no joke. So a uh, year long competition, the winner that will be selected. It's not just a plaque or a participation ribbon or anything along those lines. You're getting a brand new truck. That truck is a hundred and fifty thousand plus dollar truck, uh, signature edition T six eighty stamped aluminum cab sleeper. Uh, it's just a phenomenal award that really recognizes your truck driving school, right? Where you got your CDO, the company that you work for, but also the veteran that wins. Uh, it's a big deal to be able to transition out successfully. It's it's something that uh, those that are transitioning often struggle with, but to be able to step into a role and be successful in your first year is a awesome thing. And then to be able to compete on a national level is impressive. 
I was just flabbergasted when they told me that was was uh, nominated, and then that I found when I found out that I was in the top seventeen, we all went to Columbus, Ohio. We had an awards ceremony, a veterans uh, center there, and got to see the you know they talk about all the vets and what we have done in our careers and our transition into the trucking program. Um, we all got uh, these really awesome trophies with a plaque on them, you know, talking about our transitioning excellence. And then at that point, they named the top five. And when I found out that I was in the top five, I was you know, just tough to even hold back the tears. You know, it's like, it, you know, I've won the nomination. I've won a semifinalist uh, nomination. And now I've won a nomination to be a finalist. You know, they, they said, well, you can take your badge off now because you're never, you're not a semifinalist anymore. And I'm like, well, you know, if you think about it, I am a semi, a semi, uh, a, a semi truck <laughs> finalist. So any idea how big the or initial, how many applicants were there? How many drivers were nominated? Any idea how big that field is? I have no clue how many people were actually nominated, you know, even from our company. I, I don't know. I don't know how I was seen as a nominee. I don't know who initiated the nomination and I don't know how many people, I mean, there's supposedly from, you know, any veteran truck driver from any truck driving company in the United States was eligible to be nominated for this award, but I don't know how big that is. Had to have been thousands. I think it's safe to say the pool was very, very large yeah. to go from the initial pool to just the semifinalist round of 17. That was yeah. a lot of cutting went into that. Yep. From the company perspective, all our eggs, one basket, you were the nominee for Warner Enterprises this year. So from the company perspective, you're you're one of approximately 10,000 drivers. Not all those drivers are veterans. Not all are qualified for it, but large portion of those drivers are veterans. Uh, so you were the one nominee from... Warner this year. Uh, so to be able to go from that initial pool to 17 semifinalists to five finalists, it's awesome, right? I, I don't, I don't know how to describe how that, mu- that feeling must feel. I still don't know how to describe that feeling. It is just, <laughs> it's one of those things that, you know, pinched me. This has been a dream for a whole year. You know, if I've been in a coma and trying to wake up from something, a bad accident somewhere, but man, you you took it all the way to the end, and you know, sadly, it we we didn't cross that finish line. Uh, but you know, it, what do they say? No matter if you win or lose, it's how you play the game. And I got to tell you, listening to your story today and seeing where you came from, I mean, and you said it yourself, you already feel like a winner with your wife and your kids. That to me is that's what I'm taking away from today. What what are your thoughts, sir? Or how do you think about it? I am absolutely a winner. You know, I, I didn't win the truck, um, but I am a winner all the way across the board. I mean, I've had a, a year-long journey getting to this point, and I have been riding on cloud nine this whole year. Yeah. You know, finding out that I was nominated was just above anything I'd ever expected. And then to make it to the top 17 as a semifinalist. And then, you know, being a finalist and getting to go to Washington, D.C. and doing the wreaths across America and, and visiting, you know, the, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and, and Arlington National Cemetery, all, all of these things, even though I didn't get to walk away or drive away with the truck, I have won so much this year that, you know, it's it's beyond even 
you know, trying to trying to explain it. Yeah. I, I've been walking on this cloud all year long, so I've yeah. had a, a year-long journey of excellence with Werner Enterprises in this transition trucking program. Well, I, I do have to echo your sentiments there. I do feel like truly uh, Werner Enterprises is winning because we have a, an amazing driver in you and, and everything you bring to the table, and we just want to say thank you for everything that you do each and every day and doing it safely and and just being here at Werner, we we can't thank you enough, and we're just so proud of you for everything you've done, and we're just so happy that you're you're driving the journey each and every day. Well, greatly appreciate that. It's I mean, it's been an amazing adventure, and and Werner is an amazing company that has just supported me and everything I've done, and and you know, like I said, the, the nomination is is way more than I would have ever expected out of any other job or career that I've had in my life. So this is amazing. So that should uh, wrap up our here our our Vet Voices podcast here for Werner Enterprises team. Thanks so much for listening today. The brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces and our allies all over the world, we salute you. Make sure to buckle up and drive safe out there.